Hello, everyone. Welcome to the continuation of the theme and the extrapolation of the theme of the paramis. <clears throat> I hope every one of you feel the gate through which the paramis allow us to move. They're a tremendous um, sense of, they give us a, a subject that has the depth and richness that calls forth our heart and the expansiveness to be extraordinarily, unequivocally open. And uh, because of that openness, as I've spoken before, a lot of fear can arise when we think of unabridged generosity or unequivocal expansiveness of patience. We don't see how little me could ever fit into that. Well, little you can't. And we're up against untying the knots of that little me, that egoic sense of the control and the fear and the constricted sense of ourselves and the willingness to keep releasing the bounds and the, 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 the binding that uh, the sense of self gives us. Uh, and what we find is that uh, openness is equivalent to wakefulness. And wakefulness is not without the ability to say no and set limits. So it's not as if we're walking into some black hole where we won't be considered any longer in which our needs will never be met and which we'll be giving away our possessions and giving our house over to the homeless. That may happen if you are of that disposition, but quite likely it will not. You'll continue to set limits, to set boundaries. Why? Because one of the... Uh, one of the considered points within this clear comprehension of space that any of these paramis offer is one's own considered needs. What It doesn't just look outward to see what is the population's needs. It also looks backward to see what one's own uh, sense of self's needs is as well. So that it doesn't, it looks 360 doesn't just look out and then continue to give endlessly, depleting itself to burnout stage before it keels over and then dies. That's why I don't like the Jataka tales so much because they don't, you know, the Buddha's standing on a cliff and he sees a starving lion and so he just throws himself off the cliff so that they could feed the starving lion. What, what kind of sense does that make? What kind of clarity is that? <laughs> doesn't make any sense to me. It's, and who wants to em, emulate that? <laughs> it doesn't feel very spiritual to me. But so, so this is one's, it takes into reference uh, the needs of one's self. Uh, now, that sense of self isn't the sense of self we're talking about. It's the organism sense of self. It's the need to be fed and housed, the prerequisite sense of self, medicines. In, uh, shelter. Uh, so, so a lot of simplicity comes along within that openness. We see that much of what we have accumulated 
and the expanse and protection is really a, a defense against, it's either a, um, a, propaga- a, a proclaiming of who we are through our possessions or it's a fear of being um, deprived without our possessions. So a lot of that uh, tends to fall away. Uh, and life does become very simple. There's no question about that. But the sim- simplicity is its like a breeze in the morning. It's just, it's so refreshing not to have a bird, the burden of life meet you uh, every step of, along the way. So this, these paramis are encouraging an exploration towards that simplicity. And that simplicity is an expansive openness that each one of these offers. So when we start talking about the paramis, we begin to see that each of the paramis is a hologram for all the other paramis. And you can find your way through to to each parami. It's like a door that enters, and then you have nine other doors, each which enters from that one door. And from that one door, all other doors are also accessed. And so what we, we can begin to see that humility is the common element of all of these. That it, that it doesn't allow us um, aggrandizement, but it just it begins to pare us down so that we begin to see the essence of what we are without fear. And it allows that humility and patience uh, patient humility brings us into the gate of what I think is the linchpin to all of the paramis, which is what I want to talk about tonight, which is honesty or truthfulness. Truthfulness and honesty. Now, uh, truthfulness, I just, just let the word sit with you for a second. Uh, I think I don't think there are very many of us here that don't somehow... Uh, equate a spiritual journey with some sort of honesty. We don't think we're becoming corrupt while we're doing this. We don't think we're going to become better uh, thieves. We have a sense that there is a way that this practice brings us into honesty. Although for me, I don't know about for you, but for a number of years, it wasn't real clear how that happened. I had a sense, like I'm sure all of you do, that it's the right way to go. It's kind of an intuitive sense that it moves in this direction, but it didn't, it's like uh, having a dissembled, uh, and having never seen an airplane, but having a dissembled pieces of airplane all around you. The architect all kinds of works together. You can see the architect of the wing and the architect of the of the main body and you feel well they all fit together but how they fit together is is yet to be determined and so too in Dharma you have all these different pieces that somehow don't they don't feel like an embodied whole thing and for me uh, truthfulness or honesty didn't quite fit in there I said how does that work how does that fit in not does it make sense but how where is its connected link well, it's very interesting, you see, when you start looking at what, when you make a study of dishonesty, when you start taking dishonesty on, and you start looking at what 
causes, what, what are the origins of dishonesty? You immediately see how this whole thing rounds itself out. Because the, the need to be dishonest for almost all people, I leave out pathological liars or people who I just lie for automatic reasons, but for most of us, we lie with an intention, for a purpose, for a reason. We distort the truth, we corrupt, because there's something we get from that corruption, from that, usually it's because we fear what we would, how we would be seen if we said what was true. And we're to hold ourselves in a distorted light from what we honestly know ourselves to be, we lie. And so that sense of self-proclamation, that sense of self-proclaiming ourselves, has the point of being able to uh, hold our image uh, in contrast to the sense of me that feels um, in some ways uh, dishonest or inadequate. And because we all want to be seen by others in the light of that goodness, we will say what we think the other person wants to hear. In fact, I saw, I heard this on the radio, some guy wrote a book or something about honesty, and he said, when two people meet each other for the first time, uh, the average is that there are three to five lies in the first 15 minutes of conversation. (laughs) That's interesting, isn't it? Because you want you want the other person to meet you in in a good light and in proper shape, right? So, oh, you look really nice today. It can be it can be um, socially um, beneficial lies in the sense that you know they're people want to hear them, but they're nevertheless distortions of the truth. And so, the commentator on this uh, when they were interviewing this guy, he said, well, isn't that okay, socially acceptable lie? Isn't that okay? He says, well, you know, you might think it is, but it sets up a standard for truth-telling that never gets met and that we just keep walking those lies and the reason for them and keep bending further and further uh, to, to having those lies fit our particular needs, whether they're socially necessary or not. And so he said, you know, you, ju- you just at some point you just have to you just have to draw a line and uh, you have to start telling the truth. That doesn't mean that you're rude within the truth, and I'll explain that in later part of the talk, but it, it does mean that there is a willingness to um, say of most uh, most in, in most situations, the accurate information of what is being seen, right? Or not to say anything at all. So we'll get to that in a minute because the Buddha has a lot to say about the context for truth-telling because truth-telling itself is not, can be very rude and is, can be as uh, damaging as lying, really, to someone. And so we need, to, we need a context for bringing this out. And that context is the context of the heart. The mind can get very interested in being truthful in every situation and sort of 
throwing its sword, you know, uh, cutting its sword through uh, anything and everyone with its absolute truth and, and leaving a lot of blood on the walk. Uh, but we're looking at something uh, much more in tuned with one's heart here. And truth is also attuned to one's heart. Truth is in line with awakening. And awakening is awakening to the truth. That's what awakening is. The sense, the egoic sense of you and I, the egoic sense, the, the sense of image that we have about ourselves, the idea we carry about ourselves, protects itself by distorting the truth. So you can see a natural rub between the egoic expression that we carry around us most of the time and the heart's need to align itself with awakening, which is truth-telling. And those two are in constant rub, and you will be able to walk that through that gate of that rub almost continuously through life. I mean, it won't be just in the first 15 minutes of conversation. For our distortions go on far beyond that. There's not only the distortion that we say in relationship to um, communicating with others, but there's also the distortion and lying that we tell about ourselves. And that's far worse in some reason because we're, we're f- afraid or refuse to face the fact of what we see about ourselves. That's the worst kind of lie. Because therein lies all... When we're not willing to face the fact of what we see then we're certainly going to distort uh, that when we're asked or confronted by the false sense of who we are, the inauthentic sense of who we are by others. We're going to constantly be distorting it. And so our need to like runs very deep. And so it's not something that we should just, you know, sort of muscle our way into and sort of say, okay, you know, uh, this is going to be, I'm just going to tell the truth from now on. The sense of self loves to have that kind of task at hand, but it will fail miserably. It will fail miserably. And I have lots of stories about how I failed miserably in that. (laughs) But there's one that I, a story that I really like because it just shows where that rub, how how deeply that rub can take us. And it's a story about uh, Sigmund Freud and um, Carl Jung who were on a train together going towards Clark College in Worcester, Massachusetts to get an honorary degree simultaneously. Both of them were being honored by the university there. And they were, as they were riding on the train to, with each other, they, were, uh, they agreed to psychoanalyze each other. I guess that's what you do when you... I'd rather be with a meditator myself. And, let's just be quiet together. <laughs> but anyway, they... They were analyzing each other and um, I, I guess going relatively deep because they were both masters at that trade. And I th- Carl Jung, this, was, this is written in his memoirs, so it's not a, it's not a story, it's the truth. And he, uh, as he was uh, going deeper into uh, Sigmund's uh, psyche, it reached a point where <coughs> Sigmund Freud said, Stop! I will go no further. You threaten my authority. I love that, you see. Because here's a man. Well, I mean, you know, 
He was trying to look as clearly as he could see as to what the nature of the psyche was. So he had to be aligned somehow to the truth of what was going on. And yet there was a point in which his authority meant more than the truth of where he was going. You see? Now, we let's not dismiss that as, oh God, he really was an inauthentic therapist. Because I doubt whether, uh, if rightly pushed, all of us wouldn't have that point of fighting back, would we? That point in which we can, we'll go no further. Wait a minute, my authority. We might not say my authority, we might say any, something else. But we would feel on the edge of ourselves. And the willingness to uh, honor those limitations, but not concede to those limitations. What I would have said was, Back off here a little bit. <laughs> let me let me have a breathing space and let me see what's coming up. Maybe I'll say something. Maybe I won't at this point. But I I need some time to look at what's going on here. You know, and I think that is the legitimate way to to, to, to just to take ourselves into consideration. Say, wait, you know, there so, there's a need here. There's a a tightened need for the ego to protect. And uh, I'm one, I no longer try to threaten the ego with my puritism, my purity, puritanical, (laughs) with my purity, because I don't have much. So I don't, I never, I don't, you know, get out, you know, I don't do that anymore. I just, I'm patient. You see, feel the patient humility. Wow. The humility of being at a place, reaching a point in your psyche where you don't want to go. I mean, to give give yourself a break here. Look at this thing. Wow, this really hurts. This there's so much uh, pain behind this. I don't want to expose it. I don't want you to see what I'm afraid of looking at myself. Let me look at it myself, and then maybe I'll let you see as well. But I need to I need to be patient in this. But I don't stop looking and I don't just draw a line and say my authority's on this end and and I won't cross that line. No, I want to look at that line. And because the the truthfulness only only moves in one direction. It will stop and pause, it will be patient, uh, it will give as much time as necessary. But it doesn't stop looking. Once you see, you can't pretend you haven't seen. I hope you re- we realize that. Once we look, once we see ourselves, which all of you will have caught glimpses of insights into yourself, maybe your psyche, or maybe just the nature of reality, and you wish you'd never had them. It's too late. <laughs> you had it. If you, I mean, many of us wish we never gotten started in this game. Probably would have been better off, hadn't we? Because it just keeps, it just is relentless in its honesty and at the unfolding of the honesty. And what we have to do, and as I mentioned, patience is certainly a part of what we have to do, but we have to sort of tag along (laughs) after the exposure you know, we have to sort of figure out what's left after we, the the insight is 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 shown to us. And I can remember deep insights I've had where I went to the teacher in tears, just streaming down my face, 
and uh, I said, you know, you, I thought I was going on vacation for a few weeks. I'd go back home, but now I've lost my home because I saw deeply into the nature of the sense of me. And the teacher at that point, bless his heart, he didn't try, you know, to force me into a deeper level. He just said, just, just let it sit there. Just take a walk. Go out and take a walk. Just let it sit with you. Just see, see what comes back in. See what comes back in. What comes back in often is turmoil. The sense of self just has been threatened and it doesn't know what to do. It doesn't know how to piece itself back together and it, it tries everything. It tries the, the worst fears, the deepest sense of paranoia. It tries to bring out the, the memories of abuse. It tries, it'll go anywhere to try to restructure itself back to something that's smooth and known once more. But I can't do it. Can't do it. Can't. Once the reflection is seen, the reflection is seen. So okay. So you, all this turmoil, all this restructuring, all of that, all of the emotional, you know, it just comes at you like a dust storm. And with patience, with patience, and with sincerity. Sincerity is is the continuation of patient honesty. It's the compelling nature of the Dharma. The Dharma gets more compelling as we get more honest. And it gets so... I mean, you don't come here for me. I'm under no illusions. You come here for the Dharma. You come here for the truth. You come here for your own resonance to your own honesty. That's what you're here for. That's what you're here for. And that is the only way it works. And when you, when you get that sense in you, that, oh, then you, you don't want more and you do. You know, it's an approach avoidance situation. You don't know what to do, but there's nothing else you can do except take another step forward. And this contracted sense of self, this, this sense of me that has been so um, sheltered in its need for f- protection, just begins to loosen a little. Begins to loosen a little. Why do we need protection? Because facing realities destroys our fiefdom, destroys our kingdom. It's like we've all made a contract with Mara. Okay? Mara is the equivalent of the devil in biblical, except it's really one's own um, reaction to one's inward processes. So we've made, we've made a, a contract. And that contract says, Mara says, okay, I'll tell you what I'll give you. I'll give you a very uh, protracted life in which you will have your little kingdom, you'll be in complete control, or you'll think you're in complete control, which is good enough. <laughs> and, but what, what, here's what you can have. You can't see reality. You won't see things as they are. You will see things as you want to see them. As you project or um, distort or defend yourself 
from reality. But you won't see reality. Is it a deal? I'll sign. So most of us have signed up for that. And we get a trance. Because we can't get reality. That would be breaking our contract. We get a trance. And the trance is filled with what we have filled it with. With the words, with our ideas, with our projections, with our beliefs, with our story, our narrative. And we love that because it gives us a whole sense of a point. It gives a point to life. And it gives a point to me being in life. And that was part of the contract, that we would get ourselves within this storyline, within this narrative. If there's a story, it's got to be a narrative. Uh, if there's a narrative, there's got to be a storyteller. So we get the storyteller along with the narrative. And that's that feels good. Because now we can like, drive this thing the way we want to drive it. And But we what we don't get is the truth. We don't get the honest Truth. We don't see things truthfully. We see things distorted by our need to uh, protect and defend our fiefdom. So at some point, we don't like that contract anymore. We, I mean, like anywhere, and that feels or senses that they may be imprisoned, we want out. And so we try, we go back on our contract. We get involved in meditation or some other way of perceiving reality directly without our story, without the words that continually distort what we see. And Mara kicks ass. <laughs> for lack of a better expression. <laughs> he comes at you. And he will bring up your worst points because he certainly knows where those worst points are. He'll make you feel as inadequate as you've ever felt in your life or whatever. He'll just keep bringing forth everything to keep you back in that bubble, the bubble of self. And that's the contract. And that's how the ego survives its way through is that every time it breaks out, we come back uh, with the force and effort uh, and the certainty of how we know how to break out is by using the very volitional intentions of the sense of self to break out further. And those volitional intentions, that effort, that sense of egoic strength is really hardening the bubble. And so for a long period of time we think that we are in control of our spiritual life but controlling our spiritual life forces us into more distortion, into more egoic embeddedment. Until you realize that you are not in control of your spiritual life, never were. How could you be when that's all a dream? How could you ever have been? How could you even think that you were? has nothing to do with us. That's real humility. That's real humility. And this veil of separation has been part of the trance that we've been induced within. See, see? So we get 
Hi, how are you? Hello, fine. We get that. But we also get isolation within that, of course. And we get time and distance. Distance in order to travel the way we want to travel. We are here and we need to be over there. And so psychological distance, spiritual distance, spiritual time. We get It's endless because it plays out infinitely. The truth is that it's all infinite. And so we can play time. Time, can, time will just keep going and going and going. It never ends because it's infinite. <laughs> so we just keep doing it. Just keep doing it. But you know, it's interesting. If you think, if you if you look at it from just a slightly different metaphor, the mind, the brain, is the evolutionary organ. Now, anything in evolution is evolving in time, right? So. It's a long time. I mean, it doesn't evolve overnight. It doesn't evolve in one lifetime. It evolves over eons. So no wonder it thinks in terms of time and distance because that's its evolutionary stance. That's the posture of its own development. And so if you think of it like that, then it's not Mara who's doing this. It's just the species having evolve this organ and this organ then thinks its way because thought is the changing element within an evolutionary stance. And so, of course, we're going to think in terms of time. First of all, we have to think time. And then when we start thinking time, we think in terms of time. And then we start thinking in terms of distance because distance and time are equated. And so then, of course... Now we have to think our way out of time. But can we think our way out of time? We try to think our way out of time. But that doesn't work because thinking is time. As soon as I have an object, I have a distance between me and it. You see? So thinking creates the whole evolution. And so this organ, the way it thinks, is I have to evolve. If I want to change, I have to evolve into something. Because that's what it—that's its—that's its history of evolution. So it thinks in terms of evolving, changing, changing the content, its relationship to the content a little bit, adjusting this and adjusting that, smoothing off the edges, and then going on. And that's how it's done it. Because it's an organ that has evolved over time. But the heart—and I'm not talking about the physical heart here, talking about awareness, hasn't changed at all over time. Nothing. Not one iota. Not one nudge. So it doesn't think in terms of time. It doesn't think. How could it think? If it started thinking, it would be a part of the whole conditioned way of evolution. It has remained consistently present here forever. But we look out through this evolutionary organ and think in terms of, we don't see 
the awareness because the awareness is being blocked by our thinking. And so we can't get to awareness through our thoughts and so our thoughts are blocking the very awareness that we are seeking. So we can't think our way to awareness. We have to stop thinking. And the awareness is obvious within that. I hope that was helpful. (laughs) So I want to talk a little bit because I don't have a lot of time, but I want to spend a few more minutes uh, talking about truthfulness of mind, truthfulness of mind, speech, and action. Because truthfulness, in, in the commentaries, you often see truthfulness associated with speech. Fine, I'll talk about that, but it's truthfulness is much more, as you're hearing tonight, much more than just truthfulness of what you say and how you say it. Truthfulness of mind... When we are meditating, we are, we are establishing a reference of, for the mind. We are taking the mind apart. We are looking at the mind in an honest way. Not just um, embodying the mind and its evolutionary tendency to condition our way through life, but we are looking at it as a thing itself. We're trying to look at it objectively. The science the meditation is to see, an obje- see the mind objectively rather than just to mo- move with it. So what do we see when we look at the mind with truth? We begin to, begins to dismantle the trance of how it has held us begins to be dismantled. We begin to hear thoughts rather than to think them. Now that's pretty amazing. You know, when you start, when you're practice and each one of your practice will come to this point if it hasn't already when you're sitting quiet enough you will hear thoughts being spoken and you are not thinking them you're hearing them like you're hearing my voice except your thoughts will be in your voice and so so what is that what is that I'd always thought of myself as the thinker of thoughts or most of us have. but you start dismantling and how the thoughts then try to defend against the emotion because the emotion sort of betrays me as being what the emotion says. So the thoughts try to protect me from having that uh, identification. So we get lost in a whole story that says the rationale for me having to feel this is because you did something to me. So we begin to see how we have established lies as ways to protect ourselves within this evolutionary response because we have been misjudging or misperceiving the nature of the mind. Because we've been acting from the mind, you can't see the nature of the mind. You have to put yourself in a neutral location, so to speak, for awareness to be able to discern how the mind is working then you can see the nature of the mind. And that's what meditation is meant to do. And that is truthfulness of the mind. And truthfulness of the mind doesn't take thought as being the given reference for everything. In fact, it takes quiet. Stillness as being the reference for everything. seems so illogical to not to be Spock, but... It does seem illogical that we're 
constantly relating to life as if thoughts were more of the exact truth of it than quiet. When stillness, and all of us have had moments in our meditation when stillness has shown us something far more rapturous, far more complete, far more total than what a word can put on something, what a word can do to something. And we begin to look and see what the narrative is based upon. If the narrative, if there's just processes of mind occurring, forming content and then dissolving and trying to form, which is really what it is. It's like a kaleidoscope that has a beautiful pattern and then is changes into another. That's really what the much more honest depiction of what the mind is, is kaleidoscopically just that movement of pattern after pattern, each fixing. Oh, this is so... (laughs) So where are we in all that? You see... We, we freeze the frame, refreeze the kaleidoscope frame and then try to carry it forth and carry it back and then remember it in relationship to other frames that the kaleidoscope is going through. Each one referencing, well, that's not as pretty as that. We'll have to wait and try to get it back again. Who? Because the sense of self is part of the kaleidoscope, is part of the picture frame, is part of the patterning. It's only the memory of what you were thinking about the previous frame that's carried to the next, not you. And that's honesty of the mind. And then honesty of peace, speech. Speech is a beautiful, each one of these could be a Dharma talk in themselves and perhaps sometime I'll do just that. But I just want to give you a kind of a frame of reference for honesty, for truthfulness. You see, this thing goes, this thing, you, you begin to love it. You know, you just, just for the sake of knowing, just for the sake of seeing, just for the sake of Just for the sake of walking all the way through poppy fields and flying monkeys and witches on the yellow brick road to get to that purple curtain to pull it back. That's that's what that and you just you don't want I'm getting to that curtain. See, that's the sincerity, that's the passion. The truth has its own passion, it has its own life within us. Its life is its life is guttural. Its life is of the earth. Of the gut. And so Honesty of speech, we begin to realize that 
much of what's inside gets communicated to uh, both ourselves through thought, but through others, we become we become manifestations of other people from how we speak to other people of how we speak. That people know us through that in our actions, and so our speech takes on a representation that's important. So that we, if we're going to live in accordance with truthfulness, then Somehow this speech must incorporate that intention, right? So what does speech look like when it's not uh, self-righteously honest? Because that most people in the Dharma lose it on this point. When, when you let the heart, when the speech comes from the heart, when it comes from the sense of wanting to connect rather than slamming somebody with the truth, what does it look like? What's it look like when you're trying to connect? Well, when we're trying to connect, it's pretty clear, isn't it? We're not... Some of us try to connect through lying three to five times in the first... Well, that's an attempt to try to connect. It's a wayward... It's, it's, it's a distorted attempt, but nevertheless, it's an attempt to try to connect. We think that if we say how nice you look, then you'll we'll have a nice connection, right? Fair enough. It's just a it's just we think we're doing okay. But if you ever get with somebody who's honest, not somebody who's brash in their honesty, but somebody who's honest, it makes a huge impact on you. And what they do is at least. Uh, the way I perceive it and the way it is, uh, the heart doesn't want to hurt and it realizes honesty is a tool that can create a lot of abrasive, abrasion. So it looks for the context. First of all, it weighs in whether it should even be honest in that moment. Maybe it should just be quiet. Maybe we should just be quiet. We don't have to offer our opinion just to throw it all off. But maybe it should be contextual. Maybe it should be at the right time. Maybe there should be a timing element here so that the person is in the right space, uh, in the right frame of mind to be able to hear our honesty. And maybe we shouldn't talk about that. When I was with the dying, most of the time I wouldn't talk about dying. Not because I didn't want to talk about dying, I started off my hospice career only wanting to talk about dying and getting thrown out of many homes. Because they didn't. That's not actually true. I didn't get thrown out. I got thrown out of one home. <laughs> so the context, how we say it, the way we say it, what we say, all of that is part of the comprehension of awareness. Awareness is not held within certain guidelines. It's comprehensive. It, do, it never loses 
its benevolence. It never loses its kindness. It never loses its its wholeness. And so it's, when it says something, it says it from that wholeness, from that clarity, from the comprehension. And then we move to truthfulness of action. And this one I could give a series of ten talks on. I really could. Because I think it is the, where the, this is where we lag way behind. We have to live our insight. We have to live it cellular. This is a cellular transformation. This is a cellular awakening. And our cells are deeply ensconced in our trance. In body, in, in the body posture. And though we know something to be true, we are very reluctant to act within that truth. And we stay very timid, protected. And the truth dies if it's not acted upon. Because it's ways, it's up against many more eons of conditioning than a single instant of insight. And so the weight of the conditioning far outseeds of conditioning far outseeds the glimmer of truth that we might have had in our meditation. And so we just stay stuck. We just we know something needs to change in us. We've seen the truth of it. We have absolutely seen it, and we find ourselves just being governed by the same momentum again and again and again. We play it out. We play it out. To step out of our conformity. And, you know, at some point, there will be a time in each of our spiritual lives in which we refuse in our heart to move from conformity. Just not going to do it. Just not going to have this knee-jerk response. I don't know how I'm going to move, but I'm not moving from that. Period. That's it. Now there's a pause there where there's a sense of awkwardness where we don't know how we're going to move. Because we've never done it before. But we're going to really try this time. We're going to... Try doesn't mean forced effort. It means relaxed presence. And see what comes out. Because this thing does move. This thing is as much vitally alive presence. It has been the mind that has been its, um, it's been its buffer. It's been its, uh, it's modulated it. It's kept it within a kind of confined space. Once removed, spontaneity, creativity, joy. And so truthfulness begins to walk itself. It begins to talk itself. It begins to see itself in completion. And so, but it starts from a deep intentionality towards the truth.
And the deeper you go, the more you'll see other people's falseness. You'll see what they're carrying. You do. It's not terrible. It's terrible to them. That's why they're protecting other people from seeing it. But when you see what what it's built upon, it's not awful. It's just the conditioned state of things. It all works very nicely through patience and gentleness. Thank you. Can we just sit for a minute or two? As we're sitting, you see, I mean, there's awareness. The awareness isn't afraid of anything. Awareness just wants to see. That's the nature of awareness. It just wants to see. Just seeing. Just seeing it. And freeing ourselves just to see what's there. That's all. We don't have to add a thing. We just have to see. That's why this is so beautiful. If you added anything, that's too much. What's there already? And are you willing to look? That's the question each of us should ask when we sit down. What's there right now? What's going on in there right now? And am I willing to look? In body, speech, and mind. Yes, question. question is around having an insight and uh, being willing to act from that insight. Well, I mean, it can be a psychological insight, let's say. Let's say that you feel yourself, you're afraid of people. And you know that there's nothing to be afraid of, but that holds back a certain, holds you back in many ways, your fear of people. So, you start, you have an insight in that. You see it. You really see the fear and you see the emptiness of that fear and you see that uh, that fear is holding you in place. So now in action, you need to actually move on it. Like you go up to somebody who you don't know and extend yourself, even though the fear in its body's conditioning repulses at that suggestion, rebels at that suggestion, wants to keep you sitting there going in the opposite direction if they see somebody coming. But you don't. You hold that you hold that reactivity and you go up to them and your mind is screaming 
and you look them in the eye and you introduce yourself and say whatever you need to say, and even though, no matter what the mind does, <clears throat> because it's not going along with you, I can promise you that, just because you've had an insight doesn't mean it rolls over. It comes at you. And so, and you just keep doing that because you know that this is a tendency that's based in fear and fear has no basis at all and that you're not going to stay governed within fear and you're going to move this thing out. And that, see, that's the, you feel, you feel the sincerity that outweighs the conditioning. You feel, you know, this is not, it's the resolve. That's my next talk after the second part of this truthfulness, which will be the week after next. But the next subject is resolve or determination. So those two go together very nice. You say, you're not, I don't give a, you're not, I am not doing this to myself. You think too much, too much of yourself. Even, the more you, the less you, the more you see into your emptiness, the more you think of yourself. The more, the more you weigh in to your advantage. Does that make sense to you? That you really consider, you consider what you see. And you're not going to be held back by limitations. That's what I mean. So that determination follows truthfulness. And those two just... Other questions? You're misreading it. I'm not using force of will at all. Determination is a, is a uh, spontaneous movement of the heart. It's not of the will. It's not, by God, it's not like that. It's like inside you just, this is not going to stop me, period. And those two are as different as night or day, and I can't explain the difference to you. But there is a, a resolve of spirit that refuses to be held in its limitation. It is going to look and see. And it's not of the egoic sense of force of will. It'll be as patient as it needs to, but it's not going to stop looking. And it's going to be as persistent, it's going to be persistent and consistent in that looking. And it will wait until the right time and all of that sort of thing. But it will not take the eye off the ball. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.